The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. And now if we will open our Bibles once again to the book of Ephesians. Open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. And we open this sixth chapter to examine the last part of the Christian armor. We are studying Christian warfare, and we are the children of God, and we are involved in a lifelong struggle against sin and Satan. And this is a struggle for the sanctification of our lives, and to win this struggle, and to be sanctified and made into the image of God, this is the purpose of the Christian armor. Now, in previous messages, I've told you that uh, there isn't a part of this armor that is more significant than any other because the believer in Jesus Christ needs all parts of the armor for his defense. We can't leave any parts off because without the whole armor, there would be an unprotected part. And you can be sure that that is the part that Satan would target. He would step up his attacks in that area And it would produce a weakness that would undermine all the other parts. And yet, as I say this, we still have the sense that there are some parts that are more vital and that shoring up these parts would be the cause of building up the the weaker virtues of the Christian life. Well, that seems to be correct until we get it straight in our minds that Paul's metaphorical use of these physical weapons is not intended as a direct spiritual correspondence to each of the physical counterparts. For example, the apostle says that we are to put on the shield of faith to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Now remember that this shield that he speaks of refers to the Roman soldier shield, the large shield, one that could hide a a soldier's entire body. This was the first line of defense in warfare. And I suppose that technically what a soldier could do is to constantly hide behind that shield so that he would need the breastplate. He would need the helmet and the other parts. But then neither would he be a useful soldier because to win battles, a soldier must fight. And a whole armor, the whole armor is needed for the fighting soldier. He needs all the parts of it to survive and be useful for the cause of the empire. And likewise, the Christian soldier can't survive Satan's attacks and be useful for the kingdom of God unless he wears the entire armor. Well, a sense of what is most important comes before us again today as we consider this last part of the armor. Now, if you'll look with me at Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse number 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, the last part of the armor is the sword of the Spirit, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, nearly every piece of the armor comes with controversy. Uh, We've argued or shown arguments about what these symbols mean, and people disagree. Uh, What is the belt of truth, for instance? Is that the truth of the Bible, or does that mean the truthfulness and the commitment of the individual? What is the breastplate of righteousness? Does that stand for good living? Or does it refer to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ? And what are the shoes of the gospel? Is that something offensive? Is it defensive? Each of these parts comes with controversy and commentators politely disagree. 
That is each of them except this last one. And its meaning is very clearly defined in the scripture. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. And every vacation Bible school student knows this. When the leader says, take out your sword for a Bible drill of the sword is the Bible. And the Bible has all the information for the initiation of soldiers into God's army. And it are found the marching orders and the battle plans and the assurance of the outcome of this war. It is also the encouragement of soldiers. It's the medicine for wounded soldiers. It's the comfort for dying soldiers. And it's the solace for loved ones who are finally claimed by death when the battle is over. The Bible is a book that stands above all others. And it's the only book that comes with a seal and a promise that the words of this book will never pass away. The Bible defines our faith. And for you to be without the Bible is like a soldier going to war without training, without firepower, and without understanding about how to defend himself. To be without the Bible and the knowledge of it is to lose before you start. Well, this message today is for everyone that hears, but it is specifically directed to the members of the Berean Baptist Church. Those of you who are members have a dire responsibility to your name. You are called Bereans, and that name is related to the word of God. In Acts 17, the Bereans were those who knew the Bible and they searched the scriptures daily to find truth. Now, it's been my intention since day one in this ministry 18 years ago to be faithful to the name of our Lord and faithful to our description as Bereans. We believe and we teach the Bible. The Bible is the forefront of our ministry. The Bible is our program. Knowledge of the scriptures is our quest because everything we are and we hope to be comes from the pages of the Holy Scriptures. And so we want you to grow in the faith. We want you to know the Bible. You must be well acquainted with the way to use your sword. And you must learn to be precise with the scriptures and discover how to use them when they are needed. And so you are to read and to study and work at this and apply the word of God to every area of your life. Now listen to the way that the author of Hebrews described the sword. In Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now, this verse says that the Bible is quick. That means it is alive. The Bible is effectual. It is powerful. It energizes. And it's so precise that it reaches down into the soul and it can divide the spiritual from the physical. There's no one that can divide the interweaving of the spirit and the body, but the Bible does. The Bible bears your soul and it bears out your sin. It shows who and what you are. It judges good and evil. And this is the reason that most people don't like it. Neither politicians pundits nor perverts like the word because it splits them apart and exposes their sin. Now, notice the scripture says in Hebrews 4.12, a two-edged sword. And the word there for sword is the word makaira. It's the same one that Paul used in Ephesians 6.17. And it refers to the, to the shorter sword that a soldier would carry with him, that he would put into a scabbard that's hanging from his belt. And, and that's kind of interesting because it would appear that the belt of truth has the sword of the spirit hanging from it. But this was the short dagger-like sword, a dagger-like sword, same as what Peter used in the garden when Jesus was seized and taken to trial. And you remember how Peter wanted to defend Jesus, but when he did, he didn't attack a Roman soldier. He thought better of that. And so he slashed his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. And not exactly an overly brave, courageous move. 
But this short sword, that was the soldier's normal weapon. It was his constant companion that he used in hand-to-hand combat. And so with this sword, he would defend himself. And with the sword, he advanced offensively. And likewise, I think the Bible shows us that the sword of the spirit is the only spiritual weapon that is both defensive and offensive. With it, you are protected. And with the sword of the spirit, the word of God, you conquer. Charles Spurgeon commented on this verse. He said, no longer is it talk and debate. No longer is it parley and compromise. The word of thunder is take the sword. The captain's voice is clear as a trumpet. Take the sword. Although Spurgeon lived in the late 19th century, there are no recordings of his voice. He regularly preached to crowds of thousands and his church was acoustically arranged so that his voice could reach every corner. And he must have had a booming voice. And I can just hear him in this militant tone to tell his people to take the word, take up the sword. And Bereans, this is what we must do. We must go to the word. The answers for everything we need are in the word. Sola scriptura, scriptures alone. And so it's enough of everyone's opinions. We go to the word alone. So we go to the word and we discover what it says. And then we are to do what it says. Let's go to the word and let's swing it with precision against our great adversary, the devil. He is resisted through the word. Now, let's return to this text. If you'll glance back at verse number 14, the scripture says, stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Now, it's been quite some time since we talked about that, that first piece of the armor, the belt of truth. And the question is, what does Paul mean by truth in the passage? And that's part of the controversy I spoke of earlier. I believe that he, he means that the Christian soldier must know the whole body of Christian doctrine. He must know what the Bible says about the Christian faith. He must be able to defend doctrines of the word that are perverted by false prophets that love to confuse the unsuspecting with heretical doctrines. But here in verse number 17, when Paul speaks of the word of God, he's not using it in the same sense as he does verse 14. There in in verse 14, it's the whole complement of scripture as objective and an apologetic system of argument. But in verse number 17, it is more pointed If you'll pardon that pun, it's more pointed in that it means to know a particular scripture at the precise moment when it's needed. When you see this phrase, word of God in scripture, often word is the Greek logos. Logos is the written word. It's the objective word. It's in the objective word that you learn the facts and the figures Logos is where we learn about salvation and who God is and how God dwells with us. Logos is broad knowledge of Scripture. That's not the word that's used in our text. Here, it's the word rima, which refers to God speaking to us specifically. This is how we know God subjectively. This is when the Spirit opens up the word of God or opens up the meaning of logos. It's when God's spirit speaks to us, we experience God. And it's when we know scriptures specifically and we can recall how to take the scriptures and apply it to a specific situation. So Paul means that a Christian soldier must have such a working knowledge of the Bible that you can pull up a verse, you can pull up a statement that addresses a particular question or a problem that you have. And the word of God works this way. It helps you when you know it, when you have a good grasp of it. Now, in a few minutes, I'm going to give you the most vivid example in Scripture of skillfully using the word to beat back the enemy. But first, before we go there, I want to discuss the source of the sword. This is our number one uh, on that listening sheet. It's the source of the sword. Where did we get the sword? Well, I don't think that you and I have too much problem with this. We're confident 
of where we got the word of God. This phrase, the word of God, is its own description as to the source. This word came from God. And so whether we're talking about logos or rima, this word comes from God. I don't think there's anything that would make this book more unique than its source. I don't think that there's another book that's more important or worth knowing than a book that came from God. I don't believe there's a book that is more profound and meaningful and effective to change our outlook and change who we are and make us different from what we were than a book that came from God. And if this is God's word and we recognize who God is and we understand that this is God speaking to man, then we know we'll never get to the bottom of it. We will never exhaust this word. And we know that we'll never be successful without it. The Bible is the most important, precious possession in the world. Well, let me show you uh, some things that the Bible says about its source. The first is that the word is spirit inspired. Second Timothy 316. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The scriptures are Theonoustos, Theo, God, Noustos, breathe. The scriptures are God, breathe. And that's the meaning of the inspiration of God. So this word of God didn't fall out of heaven as a completed volume in a leather cover. And it was discovered in a cave or in a secluded monastery. Now, the Bible was revealed over time to sanctified men who spoke what God said and they wrote down God's words. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Well, the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. Now, for sure, God used men to record it. He used their personalities. He used their styles of writing. And this is the reason that you can recognize Scriptures that Paul wrote in distinction to those that are written by John or others. They have different personalities. Their character shines through in their writing. But what was written was not their words. It was God's words. And these men always agree because it came from God, the singular source, not from them. Now, when Peter said that no prophecy of scriptures is of any private interpretation, he means that the scriptures were not a product of the prophet's reasonings and his musings of what should be said. And it wasn't their will. It was God's will. The prophet spoke and their words are often preceded by, thus saith the Lord. Now, Holy Spirit inspiration is the only explanation for hundreds of prophecies that came true. It's the only explanation of how 40 different authors, ranging from shepherds to fishermen, uh, from the highly educated to the uneducated, from kings to servants, from rich men to poor men, and they were writing on philosophy and law and, and sanitation and sacrifice and politics and social life and judgment and history and heaven and hell. And they wrote over a period of 1,500 years and most of them didn't know each other. And yet there's perfect agreement in every detail. They were fallible men. They were humans. And yet what they wrote was perfect and infallible because it was Holy Spirit directed. The Spirit directed the entire process. Now, the original scriptures, as they were penned by each writer, were the product of a Holy Spirit filled mind as they were stenographers to record God's word. Now, another remarkable aspect of the Holy Spirit superintendence is that the word survives. Now, it began to be written 3,500 years ago. It was completed 2,000 years ago, and yet you can order it on Amazon for less than $15 today. And then you can take that $15 copy, and if you could read ancient languages, 
You could take it to the shrine of the book in Jerusalem and you could compare it to the most ancient manuscripts that are thousands of years old and there is no change. Scribes carefully copied the word from generation to generation and there's nothing but supernatural superintendence that could keep the text from perversion. And so we're confident that this Bible that we hold in our hands is the word of God as it was delivered to those original men who wrote down these words. And that has been kept pure to us. And we know that we have the word of God today. Further, there's more proof of the Bible than in of any ancient text, because there are more fragments of scripture that are survived than any ancient book. And all of these uh, the, uh, fragments are are similar There's no doctrine of the Bible that's ever been controverted by any of the copies. Now, what we have today in our King James Bible is not the original autographs. What we have is a translation. Peter and Paul, James and John and others couldn't write in English. And even if they could, the original manuscripts are gone. No one has ever seen them. But that doesn't really matter because the Holy Spirit enabled men to write it, and the same Holy Spirit is certainly able uh, to enable men to preserve the word. God spoke the word, and all of it's true. And unless all is true, it has no value to us. If there's one mistake in this Bible, then all of it is suspect. Now, I say, according to Scripture, there is no mistake. We can trust it as the word of God. God is the author. The Holy Spirit is the inspiration. Now, secondly, the word is spirit directed. The Bible that we're reading from today is a dead book. That is, it's meaningless unless the Holy Spirit takes the word spoken and sends it where it needs to go. An unread Bible and an unpreached Bible has no value. Now, further, if I stand to read God's word and I begin a message that's filled with inaccuracies and misstatements and misinterpretations, the Bible has no effect. In pulpits across America, preachers read from the same Bible that I use, that is, when they care to open it, and then many of them proceed to pervert the message. But a perverted message is not a Holy Spirit directed message. And so it doesn't yield Holy Spirit guided results. This is what God says in the Old Testament, Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth and maketh it break forth, uh, bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Now, many times we read verse 11 in Isaiah 55 without verse number 10. But verse number 10 is what gives life to verse 11. There, the writer says that God sends the the rain and the snow to water the earth. And what he sends accomplishes the purpose of giving life and nourishment. And then he goes on to show us that God's word is the same. When God sends it through a man that he's enabled to speak truth, that word accomplishes God's purpose. It will convict the hearts of people and bring them to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The spirit applies the word, the rema to the mind, and that changes the disposition of the mind from unbelief to belief. Well, that leads me to a third observation. The word is spirit comprehended. The Holy Spirit must reveal this word to the hearer. Not just anyone can understand God's word and That's why most people don't treasure it. They don't read it. They don't make it the rule of their lives. They can't understand the importance of it. First Corinthians says in the second chapter, verse 14, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, if you're listening carefully today and you're cataloging doctrine as I preach, 
Here is a place where we find the irresistible work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. God said that when he sends the word, it shall accomplish the purpose for which he sent it. Well, why does God send the word to unbelievers? What's the purpose? Well, the purpose is if they believe, they will be saved. The word will accomplish it. That is when the Holy Spirit is in it. Now, if he sends the word and the Holy Spirit opens the heart to understand it, then what do you think the result will be? Well, the result is always belief that the person will be saved. And when the word goes out, but the Holy Spirit is not in it and not working, nothing is accomplished. Now, the fact is, as I preach the word, I don't have power over what the word does and to whom it does it. People just don't naturally understand or recognize who God is. Now, when Jesus came, he performed miracles. He spoke truth. He even arose from the dead. And most people didn't believe him. The Jews even covered up the resurrection with lies. So I I can't do anything to make you believe. If I could, that wouldn't work anyway. Why would you believe when people that saw Jesus didn't believe? Well, there's an answer to that, and we find it in the scriptures. Paul gives the answer in that second chapter of 1 Corinthians, as he says, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man, but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God. Why? That we might know the things that are freely given us by God. Now you believe because the word comes in the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes with this information, the word of God will always accomplish its purpose. So how are there some who say that the Holy Spirit is resisted? They say, well, you're the only one who's in charge of your heart. You decide when you will be saved. But not so, according to these scriptures, when the Holy Spirit accompanies the word, you will believe And so I'm sorry, it's denial of scripture to say that Holy Spirit power itself is not enough to overcome natural depravity and secure the salvation of everyone that God intends to save. No, the Holy Spirit directs the comprehension of the word to accomplish its purpose. If he is in it, it will be done. So the spirit and the word always work together. Now, some people want to emphasize the the spirit to the exclusion of the word. And so not being concerned about what this word says, they look for new revelations. They they look for a word of knowledge, something else that comes uh, outside of this word of God without understanding that everything that we need to know is in God's word. The spirit, the Holy Spirit will use the word to handle every situation that we face. And so when a preacher is big on the spirit, but he doesn't open God's word to read and preach it faithfully and expound it, you'll be in trouble. Then on the other hand, there are some who want the word without regarding the spirit. And so they pick up the Bible without depending on the spirit's guidance to show them the meaning. And the result of that is simply words on paper that will never change a life. The result is preaching to men who have deaf ears. If there is no spirit, the word is useless. These always go together. The word and the spirit are inseparable. Well, let's go on. First was the source of the sword. And now the resources of the sword. Everything that I've said thus far sets the stage for Paul's discussion of the sword of the spirit as a weapon for Christians. Now, remember, I said that the meaning in verse number 17 is a little bit different than uh, the reference made uh, as it applies to the belt of truth in verse number 14. In verse 17, the word is not the entire complement of Christian doctrine. It's more than general knowledge of a whole range of scripture. 
Oh, this is the pointed use of individual scripture to meet the challenges of the enemy. I said there is a vivid example of how the scriptures, um, how the word of God was used to meet a challenge. Now, I want you to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter four. And I'm sure that some of you already know where we're going with this. Uh, In chapter three is the baptism of Jesus. This was his inauguration into his ministry. John was reluctant to baptize him, but Jesus said, do this because I must fulfill all righteousness. Well, after that great spiritual experience of his baptism, uh, this is when the spirit descended on him and the father spoke and sanctioned him. Who shows up next? It happens in chapter four. Satan comes and he comes to destroy Christ with temptation as soon as his ministry began. Now, the Holy Spirit led our Lord into the wilderness to test him and to give unmistakable proof of his manhood and his deity and to prove that Jesus Christ would not sin. Well, this is often what happens to us. We experience a spiritual high. And then the next item on the agenda is the temptation that comes to knock us down from that spiritual high. Now look at Matthew chapter 4 verse 1. And notice how Jesus handled temptation. Then was Jesus led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was an afterward hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, that is, Jesus answered and said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him into the holy city and setteth him on the pinnacle of the temple and saith to him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then said Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Now do you see this? There is temptation, and Jesus met the temptation with the sword. Satan tempted him to subvert the father's provision. And notice how Satan always sows doubt. He says, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now, here's the trick of the devil. The devil wants you uh, to prove how great you are by going around God. Well, Jesus met that temptation with scripture. And he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone it is written well where is that written jesus knew because he was a master of scripture he was the author of scripture and he quoted specifically from deuteronomy 8 verse 3 satan slashed with his sword jesus slashed back and then in verse 6 satan says well okay if you're going to quote scripture i can quote scripture too and so Satan quoted from Psalm 91, verse 11. And he says, you jump off the temple and the angels will save you. Well, be careful of people quoting scripture. It may be the devil in disguise. False prophets know the scriptures and they're they're good at misapplying and perverting them. Was Jesus thrown by the devil's misuse of scripture? Well, no. You see, Satan had no direction from the Holy Spirit while Jesus was filled with the Spirit. The Spirit had descended on him like a dove. So Jesus blocked Satan's attempt and quoted back to him Deuteronomy 6.13. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Well, Satan doesn't give up easily. And so he thrusts forward with another slashing blow. And he says, well, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. 
Not a chance that Jesus would because he took out the word of God. And he quoted from Deuteronomy 10 verse 20. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God. Him shalt thou serve and to him shalt thou cleave and swear by his name. Can I remind you of something here? That Jesus did not have a physical copy of an entire Bible, the word of God that he carried with him. They didn't do that in those days. But he had such knowledge of the scripture. And he expects us to have such knowledge of the scripture that we could go back and quote these kinds of things when that's needed. So there's temptation and there's a slash, a slash and a slash. There's defense of the word. Block that slash. Deflect the blow. Be protected. God's word did it. Knowing the scriptures at the right place and the right time was the protection from temptation. So our scripture teaches that you can defend yourself against Satan the same way that Jesus did. Now, Jesus is God. And remember that you have the Holy Spirit in you and he is God. And Satan is never a match for God. Now, these scriptures and many more like them, they are the weapons against a Jehovah's Witness. How is it that a wet behind the ears Jehovah's Witness can pick apart an old seasoned Baptist? Well, he's trained in the few scriptures that he knows while you have neglected to study the word of God. What if someone says you're saved by doing good works? Well, you know that there is a scripture that refutes it. Faith is counted for righteousness. The just shall live by faith. What if someone says, you can lose your salvation? Well, there are multiple scriptures for that that say that you can't. What about women speaking in church? Well, I'm sorry, ladies, but there's a scripture for that. And on and on it goes. The word of God is the sword that fends off Satan's attacks. And you must know the scriptures to counter his blows. Now, let's finish very quickly with four resources of scripture. The first is that the word convicts. When the Holy Spirit uses the word, it has the power to convict the sinner of his sin. It judges. It pierces the heart. Now, 99.9% of the time when I preach, I have no idea how that will affect any one person. Much of the time, the messages are prepared in advance, weeks in advance. So I couldn't have picked on anybody. And there are countless times that someone comes to me after a sermon is preached uh, and, and they, they, they say, how did you know what was going on in my life? That sermon was just for me. Well, the truth is I had no idea, but God did. And he uses the word to convict. Sometimes I amaze myself. Uh, I write a sermon and after a few weeks, I forget what I wrote. And then when it comes time to preach that sermon, I go back over it and uh, I get prepared again. Sometimes I get cold chills because I realize, though I wrote it weeks ago, there's something in that sermon that addresses a very problem that we may be experiencing in the moment. Now, I say I amaze myself, but that's not true. God amazes me. God knows what you need. He knows what I need and he knows when we need it and he is prepared for that. So the word convicts and it burns in the heart. A gospel message can be like a coal of fire that burns in the soul of a lost sinner until he is compelled to cry out to God. Some listen to a message and they can't sit still because the word is burning in them. The same happens to believers. When you sin and the pastor preaches a message that hits your sin, that word will burn into you until you repent and get right with God. So the word is a great resource for sinners, whether saved or lost, sinners that need conviction. Now, then, secondly, the word converts. Nothing but the word can convert. You know, I've seen people go through reformation. I've seen people sin and then they feel remorse. But it's only the word that converts and takes an old sinner who is mired in sin, takes him and washes him inside and out. Some people say, well, oh, Pastor Smith at Berean doesn't really believe in the word. He just thinks that God elects people to salvation. And God says, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, off to heaven you go. And that's all of it. But there's no way. There is no way that anyone is saved 
without the preaching of the gospel. You must believe the gospel to be saved. You must believe this precious word of God. As much as God ordained the people for salvation, he ordained the way that they would be saved. And that was through the preaching and believing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And nothing but the gospel will convert any lost sinner. And the word is so powerful that when it does convert, the person is eternally saved. There's no going back. They are eternally secure. And that that person will always persevere in the faith. He's given all the spiritual resources he needs to persevere. He has a sword for his defense and for offense. Now, thirdly, the word conquers. This is his, its offensive capability. The word is mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. Second Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Do you see what the word says? Casting down everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Well, where is the only place that you receive knowledge of God? God is found in his word. The word tells us who God is and what he does. There is no other special revelation of God in all of the world but his word. This word overcomes the powers of darkness. The word is so mighty, the scripture says it pulls down Satan's strongholds. It pulls people out of the kingdom of darkness and translates them into the kingdom of light. How? Well, Paul said the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That great song that we sing, Speak, O Lord, says words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. And this is what the Bible says. Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now, when Jesus quoted scripture to Satan, what did Satan do? He left. He left Jesus alone. This was a head-to-head confrontation, and the word turned Satan away. I suspect that when we read, resist the devil and he will flee from you, the power of the word is the reason. Do you like to put the scriptures together? It's a fun enterprise. Listen to this, James 4, 7 and 8. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. How do you draw near to God? Well, you must be cleansed and purified. How are you cleansed and purified? We read it earlier in Psalm 119, verse 9. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto, according to thy word. This is how you resist the devil. This is how Jesus resisted him. And there is no other way it can be done but the skillful use of God's word. You will conquer the devil and all of his temptations With the word, you pull down strongholds, you advance the kingdom of God, you bring people out of darkness into the light by the power of the word. You conquer unbelief by the word. And then finally, the word comforts. It convicts, it converts, it conquers, and it comforts. Now, the Bible is not just about your initial salvation. It's not just about getting the devil out of you. Now, the Bible is hard. It is tough. It is militant whenever it needs to be, just as Spurgeon preached it. Before the person who knows Christ, the word is also his comfort. The word is his consoler. The word takes hard blows and softens them so they can be handled. Through the years, we've had some of our old folks die. They leave their lifelong mates behind. The word is their comfort. Hearing that that there is an eternal place prepared, hearing that there is a bodily resurrection, hearing there is a reunion in heaven, 
those are words of comfort to a bereaved husband or wife, to a mother or father. Now for the living, hearing that Jesus is coming back, those are words of comfort, aren't they? Paul spoke of the second coming and he said in 1 Thessalonians 4, The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And he says then, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. He also wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Now, how do you suppose that Paul was comforted in his troubles? And how was he able to comfort others? He read the word of God and he wrote the word of God as the Holy Spirit inspired him. Now, you see, the word does have this militant aspect. The Christian soldier fights with the word of God. He defends himself against all the attacks of the enemy. Offensively, he goes forth to conquer with the word But then there's also that comforting, soothing, consoling aspect of the word. The world says, keep the faith, keep your chin up. Things will be better tomorrow. And they go on their way. And what is the basis of those statements? What is the basis of their hope? Why will it be better? Well, only the Christian knows the answer. Because God's word says it will get better. In fact, it's so good We can't even explain it. Isn't it wonderful in these trying times and all that we're going through? Every one of you every day can pick up your Bible and read the Bible and find comfort for whatever it is that you're going through. Now, many, many times David wrote about the comfort of the word and the word sustaining power. He said in Psalm 119, and you can read this whole psalm, it's good. Remember the word unto thy servant upon which thou hast caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, for thy word hath quickened me. The Bible is the answer for strength in your Christian life. And how strong you will be depends on how much the Bible of the Bible you know. Now, put it this way to you Bereans. Are you true to that name? Do you search the scriptures? Are you in the word daily? Here's the psalmist owed to the word. Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure enlightening the eyes. How, how do you live without that? And this, these trying times and the uncertainty of all that goes on around us, how do you live without the Word? I don't think there is a Christian who can be successful and, and reach the, the, the joy of his life that he needs without the Word of God. Is there any wonder that Paul said, take the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now we come to you thanking you for your word. What a precious resource that you've given us. Everything that we need is found in the word. Everything there is for life and happiness, for knowledge, for how to, how to sustain ourselves, how to keep going. It, it's all found in the Word. There isn't an answer that we need that's not there. But we pray that you'd help us to be students of your Word, that we would do as the Apostle says, to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that we would have this Word ingrained into us, that we would spend the time that it takes to learn to answer those who object to it, who complain about it, who want to argue with us if that's their goal. And may we use the word to convert lost sinners as you promised the word will do. Thank you, Lord, for this, again, for this great resource that you've given us. And now, Lord, as we close this um, 
message today and this time with your people. We pray, Lord, for good success. We pray that you will use the word, you will take the word, and it will accomplish what you have intended for it to do. And we know that it will because you have promised that it would. And Lord, we just ask that we would be able to be back in services soon. We pray for this. We keep praying for it. We know it's in your timing. Um, We know that you are in control and we trust that. And we know that's part of the consoling aspect of the word because the word tells us you are in control of everything that happens. So, Lord, we pray you give us the patience to wait and see what you would have us to do. Bring us together again soon. And we praise your name for all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now I want to give you a final benediction from God's word. And this comes from that long chapter of Psalm 119, where there are 176 verses that describe God's word. As I said in the very beginning, and when we read scripture a little while ago, that uh, the the word is described in in so many ways in Psalm 119, uh, just unimaginable how many ways that David can put it and depend, uh, show us how we need to depend on it. So looking in the 119th Psalm, I now want to read verses 129 through 135. Thy mercies are wonderful. Therefore, doth my soul keep them. Thy testimonies are wonderful. The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for thy commandments. Look thou upon me and be merciful unto me, as thou used to do unto those that love thy name. Now listen to verse 133. Order my steps in thy word, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. 134. Deliver me from the oppression of man. So will I keep thy precepts. Make thy face to shine upon thy servant and teach me thy statutes. The word of God is the way that we find good success as we go through this journey to reach our final resting place in the presence of God. Go with God this week. Read your Bible. Be consistent with that, and there you'll find all the strength that you need in these trying times. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.